Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. And this is another episode of Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out out. And what are you trying to figure out, little girl? (laughs) (laughs) That's the creepiest thing I've ever heard. It comes from my my, uh, older children went to a place in Utah that was completely run by a cult and they went into the one restaurant and this man came and hovered over them and said, what would you like, little children? Oh my God. I think you accidentally took a wrong turn and ended up in Hansel and Gretel, the story. That could very well be it. I think, I actually think the word Utah sums it up. No, sorry, Utahns, you're great. The skiing, yeah, Salty Lake. (laughs) Skiing, it's great there. Skiing, Salty Lake, what more could you ask? Okay, so what are you trying to figure out, Rowie? All right, Marty, so here's the thing. I have, not too long ago, graduated to a new phase of my life. Ah, wherein I no longer wear Close. reading glasses. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word for them. That's a new phase as well where I can no longer remember words. I no longer wear reading glasses because here's for why. I need them for the screen reading mm. a lot and between the phone and the computer, let's be honest, it's quite a lot of the day and what was happening was when I t- took off my glasses, to talk to you and look across the room at you, 
our toddler would grab them mm. and run away with them and it was driving me insane in the membrane. So I thought, you know what, they're on all, all the time anyway. Let's just get them in what in America is called progressive lenses, which Ooh. to me sounds wonderful because it's all like, yay, friendly and progressive. Uh -huh. But then, and like I mean kind of like politically is how I take it. Yeah. But then it also occurs to me that progressive is a word that people sometimes apply to diseases and stuff. Illness, yes. And it makes me like kind of dwell on the reality of my own mortality dwell on the reality of my own mortality oh now you've, you're doing like senior rap <laughs> <laughs> senior rap senior rap <laughs> oh my god that's so funny that's can't, just legitimately can't move so my digits I need so a lot such a lot of widgets <laughs> yeah I'm not good at it <laughs> You'll get there, honey. Thank Give you. it a few years. Thank you. So anyway, I've been through this whole big new life learning thing of getting the doing the eye test and getting the progressive lenses. We call them like multifocals in Australia, or maybe we don't anymore. Sometimes I think things are Australia, but actually they're just 2015 or earlier mm, for yeah. everyone. Is there any difference? There's actually a whole thing about for migrant families where um, – forget where they did this research. I think some of it was like Indian migrant families to Australia maybe or the US, you know, one of those ones. They all look the same to me. <laughs> um, and it was about how families would move and have their kids in the new country and the kids would grow up and be trying to rebel as kids do. And the parents would be like, this isn't how it's done in the home country. Go to the home country and find out what, what real struggle is. We had to walk nine miles to school in the snow blah 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 and then the kids go to the home country and it's so much it's refreshingly open because that's all changed since the parents were there oh. and so they can do whatever they want and that's what we're all looking for in this life doing whatever we want because of the oh how did my rap go the reality of our own mortality oh this is just okay so how does this relate to reading glasses okay again? so I got some glasses <laughs> That's the, that's the short version. Okay. I got a pair of glasses and it's given me a lot of empathy for how people are walking around in this life trying to deal with having these different, these lenses that do different things depending on where you hold your head. So you have to hold your head at a certain place mm. to be able to see what you want to see. <laughs> this is brilliant. Oh, man. So uh, I think people have, for, from time immemorial, have been holding their heads in a certain way so they could see what they wanted to see. <laughs> I think you're right. Anyway, I learned a lot about my mother through this and a lot of empathy because what my mum has a tendency to look straight down as she walks. And I now realize, oh, it's because if you just glance down, the bottom of your lens is where the most, you know, it can get wonky. That's what I'm saying. I got scared walking down the stairs a couple of times mm. while I was getting used to these glasses. Uh -huh. So I can see that if you actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting off mic because I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate it to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you stick your chin right down, you can see more clearly, but you can, you can see more clearly what's right in front of you. But let me tell you what you can't see clearly is what's in front of you. Ah. Oh, wait, I just said the same you thing twice. You just said the same thing right. twice. At, at a greater distance. In ah, front of you, at a greater distance. As opposed distance. to right at your where your feet are. Right. 
Okay. So then something happened that pointed out the difficulty of this system. And I'm going to use my mum here, and I'm really sorry, mum, to do this to you, but it was pretty funny. So we were in New York at our place in New York, and mum had headed down to get some groceries, I think. She had two bags of groceries. Not very heavy. I would have helped her if it was going to be a whole big thing. I'm not a total cow. (laughs) Um, And so she had these two (laughs) medium-sized bags of groceries, one in each hand. And she came up the elevator, as she does, and she walks along as she does and um, opens the door and comes in. And she... (laughs) She's looking down, so she keeps walking. She walks right into the room, and at that point she looks up and puts the bags down. And what she realises at that point, belatedly, some might say, is that she was in someone else's apartment. (laughs) (laughs) She'd misremembered where to go when she got off the elevator. And so, but here's the thing, like the way that her glasses work and the way that she looks right down Uh meant that she didn't just open the wrong door. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I thought this was the other apartment. No, no, no. She opened the door brazenly without hesitation and she (laughs) drove in to the room. And they're not big apartments. These are small apartments. Were there people in there? Yes. Oh, God, what happened? There was our neighbour Inga was there. I don't know Inga yet. Hmm? I don't know Inga yet. No, I don't either. <laughs> Mum does. <laughs> she does. <laughs> they know each other well. They basically cohabit. <laughs> and so there's my mum in the middle of the room. Groceries are on the floor. She's finally looked up. And there's this poor woman who's minding her own business. <laughs> <in> <laughs> What did she say? I, think she, I don't think she said anything. I'm sure that what my mum said was, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, which isn't very menacing as far as house break-ins right. go. Yeah. Um, and also the groceries would have been a bit of a, like, red herring. Yeah, this of, is, but- like, the least frightening home invasion that I've ever envisioned. <laughs> right. My lovely mother. She's such a sweet, demure, beautiful little thing. I mean, she's just dainty and lovely just breaking right into your home and she was I'm sure she was already like thinking about putting on the kettle for a cup of tea and you know she's just sort of (laughs) trudging in in business-like manner you know I like picturing that um and so okay so here's the here's the kicker she she apologized profusely I'm sure she's a very nice lady as I said to Inga the neighbor she comes back. She realizes she turned left instead of right when she got off the lift. She comes back all the way along the hall, comes in very gingerly, <laughs> checks. <laughs> checks, okay. And then this is the first I hear of this adventure that she's had. She goes, she comes in, she puts the kettle on, puts the groceries down, and she goes, So I met one of your neighbors, Inga, and she's lovely. <laughs> doesn't mention the the um, circumstances that they met under for some time. Okay, so this is Paula as a Russian when Napoleon's army invades, just going up to the czar or whatever and going, oh, the French are visiting. They're lovely. I mean, Paula would always be positive about everything. God love her. Ah, oh, dear. All right. So what are you trying to figure uh, out, Marty Moon? Yeah, well, now I'm thinking about my progressives. Um, I'm just I'm just generally blind. 
Here's what I, I think you will have noticed this, but it's something as I drive around our home in Pennsylvania and wander around New York City and everything, I find, well, I have ADD, so I am, I only notice what I'm interested in. Mm. I did not think this was a disorder and they, until they told me, yeah, you've got to notice things you're not interested in. That to me <laughs> seems crazy. So I have not even tried to shift over. Good. But it becomes problematic when finding one's way around the civilized world mm. because I tend to choose landmarks that are interesting to me, which usually means they're quite ephemeral. Mm. They pass, don't mm. you know? They go. So like you will remember the time in New York City where I said, oh, here's how to get to the laundromat. You walk two blocks down, and if you come to the blue surgical glove on the sidewalk, you've gone too far. Yes. And you were like, that's not a real landmark. And I was like, what do you even mean? <laughs> of course. Like, what is more interesting? I'll be like, that piece of litter was there two and a half months ago. I don't know that it's going to help me today. And I'm like, so, all right, is the man on the weird bicycle. <laughs> Talk about, the, talk about the groundhog because that was important for both oh, of us. Oh, that's very important. Um, we were driving along once a long time ago and we saw a groundhog. And it was a really long time ago. It was, But it was a big groundhog. That's true. That's Memorable. True. People, this was an ample unit of groundhog. <laughs> He if was, we if if we need to measure units of groundhog, like imagine a furry hoop skirt just w- making its way across a field, it that was is such a weird image. I feel like I just got such an interesting glimpse into how your mind works. A furry hoop skirt making its way across a field. Obviously, you just don't look as closely at groundhogs as I do, Obviously. because you're I don't know driving in progressives. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so there's then there's Groundhog Street and. I have to say, around here, there are a couple of streets that, that do capture my attention because they are they have real names. They're not like in modern developments. They always give them corny names like Pheasant Point with an E on point. Mm. Um, Whispering or like Willows. Whispering Winds. Yeah. Murmuring. Murmuring Munchkins. <laughs> murmuring Munchkins. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Um, this Oz world. Well, Oz people. I know you come from Oz. We just went in so many directions. Um, (laughs) No, but I think that they should name them things like grumbling oaks, muttering, muttering aspen, vaguely threatening. threatening. Yeah, but Mm, I'm trying to think of a tree. (laughs) Eucalyptus. The thing is that around here, you you have street names that are old, like 200 years old. So they're real. They're things like street road. We have a street road here. They weren't brimming with imagination yeah. back what in the day. What do we call it? It's a street. It's a road. It's a street road. I guess they were like fighting off bears and stuff. They didn't yeah, they have were a lot busy. of time for pheasant pointy point. And then there's um, there's my favorite. We almost bought a house on a, a, a road that is called, I kid you not, Old Windy Bush Road. <laughs> for some reason, a lot of our friends thought that that would be a great place for us to live when they wanted to come and visit. They'd be able to remember. I don't know why they thought they'd be able to remember when they thought of us. I know. What well, it's Old so Windy Bush would have in yeah. common with us. It's like Bushy Bush Road would be a street road version of Old Windy Bush. I'm not, I'm not making any sense. Okay, here's the point. <laughs> Here is the point. There is a place where I have to turn to go to the dentist. And the only way I know how to turn is that a, a red-winged blackbird lives in that field. Mm-hmm. And he flies around. I actually around know where you're talking about. Yeah, right? Because of the blackbird, the red-winged blackbird. Yeah, God, they're be- so beautiful, aren't they? Oh, 
beautiful black with these little epaulets of red and gold on their shoulders. It's just amazing. And he flies around a lot. Mm. But if he if he's not flying, mm. I don't know where to turn. You know what's even weirder? It's like when there's geese at uh. Groundhog Point. <gasps> and then you're like, wait. No, I wait, don't... wait. Geese is how I know to go right for the grocery store. That is, yeah, that's just wrong. I know. You can't put a goose in the Groundhog Street. I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, see that you don't. Yeah. So I basically just wander around Pennsylvania trying to sight animals and turning wherever they are. And it, I spend a lot of extra time in the car. I'm just saying. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Trying to well, figure it out. good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to help me. I did. Oh. I, I put a goose there. Uh, you said you didn't, but at least you knew the Red Wing Blackbird, so I'll give you points for that. All right. So we, of course, also have our new item, Karenism of, of the Week. week. <laughs> you decided to, to wrap this. it. I decided to sing it. That's, That's cool. Right. We go along that way. Yeah. Yeah. So we looked through our list of Karenisms. Wait, wait. If, if you're new to the podcast, you ah. won't know about our beloved Karen, who is quirky and a lot of fun. And wonderful and also quite funny. And did I say quirky already? But yeah. she's funny because she says things in dead earnest mm. that are just kind of odd. But she's not joking when she says them. She laughs later when we laugh. But when she <laughs> says it, she's just genuine. She's very earnest. Yeah. So um, so we were, this is a while back now, but it's like a classic Karenism for the ages. And we, okay, so we live out in the woods and, you know, we don't do much. We just look at our neighbors' houses sometimes. <laughs> pandemic. <And> pandemic. <clears throat> this was also winter. And we so we were looking at our neighbors' house. They're like up the hill. They're a ways away. It's not like we're looking in their windows and they're next door. But anyway, one day a van turned up at our neighbor's house and it it was like, Okay, so their house is over here. You can't see my hands, but just imagine I'm pointing one way. Their house is over here. The fan is over here. I'm pointing the other way, like really far from the house. And we were just sort of like, what's, where, why is that van like way over there? And it stayed there. Yeah. And th this was in weather, like it was mm. in snow and wind and you wouldn't want to walk that distance to the house. Like, why did they park the van there? Exactly. And so Marty and I are like puzzling over this. It was like the time there was a goose at the Groundhog Point. It was just, it was so worthy of conversation and we're there. <laughs> and Karen walks past us at a certain point and we're like, have you seen the van at the other house? And she looks up at it, hadn't seen it before, and she goes, oh. <laughs> she goes, oh, that looks like a van for a Christmas uncle. <laughs> and I said, what? She said, yeah, it just looks like a Christmas uncle would be in a van like that. And I, we were like, what kind of uncles she, do you have? She just walked off. It was like, I've said enough. But the images she left us with, and this is a woman who watches like true crime mm. mysteries a lot. So I pictured like a big bushy moustache. Sorry if you have a big bushy moustache, but I think scary people old also wind, often do. Old windy bushy moustache. Old windy bush doesn't like that moustache. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't even know oh, what that means. God. I don't even. I just, just keep it. talking. 
Just keep talking. You keep talking. I can, I, all right. So yeah, <laughs> there was the Christmas uncle and there were all kinds of perverted images in our mind about what was going on in that van after Karen said this and just walked away. Well, and I've got a theory because I, I wonder if a Christmas uncle is the kind of uncle that you don't want to invite, but you have to mm. invite him for Christmas. And so you're having him sleep in his van? Or you just, he shows up and he's like, Merry Christmas. And you say, Dude, the restraining order stipulates that you need to be 300 yards away. And he's like, okay, I'll go sit in my van. Oh, my God. What if the Christmas uncle was just literally an uncle that was a gift? Oh. Like, what if you for Christmas decided to give someone an uncle? Oh. Might even be one of your uncles. Doesn't yeah. matter. It's Christmas. You could wrap it in a van. It's the thought that counts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I have so many thoughts about Christmas uncles now, and I never thought of the phrase before, but it's never going. No. Never going away. No, there'll be a Christmas uncle Thank lurking you, in our psyches for the rest of our days. Because of Karen. Because of Karen. We'll be right back with more Bewildered. I have a favour to ask. You might not know this, but ratings and reviews are like gold in the podcasting universe. They get podcasts in front of more faces, more eyes, more ears, all the bits that you could have a podcast in front of. That's what they do. So it would help us enormously if you would consider going over to your favorite podcasting app, especially if it's Apple, and giving us a few stars, maybe even five, maybe even six. If you can find a way to hack the system, I wouldn't complain. And uh, a review would be also be wonderful. We read them all and love them. So thank you very much in advance. Let's just go out there and bewilder the world. Mwah. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh! By coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called The Change Cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. So introduce the topic of this day. All right. Well, I just will then. And gang, we haven't done a Be Wild Files for oh such a long time and so we thought let's do a be wild files episode today because we had a few of you now i, want, I always want to say write in name and address on the back of us what is it name on the self, envelope stamped self-addressed envelope stamped on a postcard no you used actual technology because you don't live in my childhood so um be wild files are about when we talk to you about what you're trying to figure out you mm-hmm. sent them in there's look at the show notes if you want to do the same. There's a link. And um, so we're going to do that. How's that, Marty, for introducing Works the topic? We're going to do it. Who's our first caller? So our first caller is Judy. Mm. And we're going to listen to Judy and see what she has to say. I am 54 years old and I believe that I deserve to live in peace and I've changed my life left a 20-year marriage, left a career and started over and surrounded myself with people who are 
creative and open-minded, honest and kind. And in doing so, I noticed that there are almost no heterosexual men left in my life. And I'm wondering if this is a trend that you see in your work, Martha, that the, um, the more women get rid of heterosexual men in their lives, the more peaceful their lives become. Okay, so right off the bat, Judy, I just want to take issue with the phrase, get rid of the heterosexual men. <laughs> this podcast does not endorse, nor does it condone <laughs> getting rid of any sort of people at any all, not even person. a Christmas uncle. Oh my gosh, no, leave him as he is and we take your meaning. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this makes sense and and without it being a kind of, you know, Bashing. This is tricky territory. We could be get, we could be very homophobic. No, androphobic. <laughs> Not homophobic. Androphobic. Afraid of men. And so I want to say right up front that we there are many um, men that we love dearly. Yeah. <laughs> Rose says yeah and tries to think of one <laughs> that's not true at all that's not true that's not true we live with a wonderful man Adam Beck that's true yeah no I mean it's funny because it's like I can absolutely take your meaning and totally get it and then at the same time there's like six different things in my head that come up and it's like I immediately notice that the cis heterosexual men that I still love and want to be with in in you know and I should have said congratulations for doing all that stuff yeah. and getting to such a place of peace and I feel like I'm also like getting to a point where there's a lot more peace in my life than there used to be um when I look at the men around me that I love dearly I don't know if I don't know if this is unfair Marty I feel like they tend to be people who've who've struggled in other ways and and they're not like Sure. Typical men. Why is that? Why would I? Um, I love my phrase from the Peruvian shaman who said, um, compassion is the evolution of consciousness and the healing of trauma, which I thought was, I mean, it just came right out of his face. And I was like, whoa, wait, Com let me memorize that. Compassion, compassion is the evolution of consciousness in the healing of trauma. So Even what he's basically saying is if something bad has happened to you and you have gone deeply into yourself enough to um, have compassion, mm -hmm. you have evolved. So I would say, yeah, people in general who have had difficult times and God knows it's a difficult planet. So pretty much everyone, but the people who've gone inward and examined their lives and, um, dealt with something difficult, have a lot of compassion, you know, mm. more than say people who are more callow, they're younger, they haven't done as much, or they've suffered without any self-examination. And they're sort of clinging to their privilege. I think when you've gone through something hard, um, you start to notice other people's suffering as well. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, we often talk about culture, nature in, on this on this podcast as though our nature will never coincide with the culture. And mm. yet, you know, it from time to time it does. From time to time that when the culture says be like that, I'm like, oh, I actually already am, like truly in my nature. Not many times, but sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think that often, and, you know, I'm choosing words really heavily here, but often the Venn diagram of the, those things lining up, they can line up more easily for in this moment in our culture for white, straight, cis guys. But I think... And so I think that that, that, that exists, but yeah. then I also think that 
where we are in the culture is a point that can be really difficult for those guys that are, and this sounds stupid, but like who are still in that privileged position. Hmm. It's that, that privilege can exist in certain ways and then there's it's struggle town in others. What do you think about that? Um, I think I like specifically, what do you mean? So I say I'm a straight white mm-hmm. cis man Yeah. and how are things hard for me now? All right. So what's easy for you is you get all the jobs and you know, right. All that, that sort of basic cultural stuff is, yeah. is easy. Yeah. But the culture, it seems to me is in a process of like really hardening old gender roles where they haven't yet broken right Mm. gender all kinds of things all those roles that were kind of like I guess part of what you would think of in the 20th century yeah you know and this is almost the last bastion of it because it's it's still drenched in privilege yeah and so I think that men are being held in themselves in those in that kind of masculinity often toxic masculinity just because they're doing it doesn't necessarily mean they're enjoying it what do you think oh yeah absolutely there's something i call the man cage and i've been ranting about it for decades and i first thought of it when i when i read um classics of sociology and Max Weber, one of my favorites, um, was talking about how there was an iron cage that humans were being pushed into. And he was talking about men because, of course, women didn't actually count. As men become more and more cogs in the machine of materialism and capitalism, their ability to choose their role will be constrained more and more narrowly. And they will be shoved like out of sort of leisure spaces and in more into work, work more of the time, more of the day, uh, put more of your identity on what you do that gains money and status and wealth. And so the whole range of human emotion and capability that is possible for a human is, is incredibly curtailed for guys who are trying to fit in the male model right now. Mm. And I also think, um, as I was listening to Judy talking about how it's so peaceful, say what you want about how men and women naturally are. I don't know about that, but I will tell you for sure that men are groomed for war and women are groomed to be compliant. Right. So men are literally taught to be less peaceful. Mm. And there's this cycle that I've noticed in movies and things where men are they watch all these fun war movies where people are going on in this band of brothers and it's awesome and they're they're great. You know, we're going to win. We're going to beat everyone. We play these video games where there's always this hulking man walking away from a steaming field of rubble. Mm. And you're thinking, who's going to make his breakfast? Because they're all dead, you know, because life goes on after war. But that's women's responsibility, right? Mm. So they make these movies that are all happy, happy war movies. Then they go to war. Then they come back and make movies like The Deer Hunter or The Hurt Locker about how absolutely not fun that was. Mm. And they start to become the proponents of peace. And, you know, it just shows you how you push a a person far enough Mm -hmm. into being a cog of the culture until they're literally being used as cannon fodder. Mm. And then they finally go, no, (laughs) no, I actually don't want this and this is wrong. And they start to question the whole culture. And that's when they become sort of um, champions of peace. 
Do you think I can? Compl- I completely buy all of that. I really, really like it. And I just wonder, like, we're at this point. We're at this interesting moment. I think where there's so much breakdown of stuff around gender and identity, mm-hmm. and you know, um, I just wonder is uh, is um, is masculinity as a whole being pushed to a point where it can't hold? Hmm. I don't know. It may, this is, it will be decided by individuals who identify as male because they will be the ones that have the, the, the heel of culture shoe grinding them down. Mm. They will be the ones who say enough already. It's like Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, you know, back with the suffragettes, I'm, I'm here for the rights of women and women have been systematically disempowered in the polity, the law and the economy. And my job, my mission in life, and I read this and I thought she's going to say, I'm going to get them equality. And she said, my function is to deepen this disappointment in the hearts of women until they will suffer it no longer. Wow. So the people who break out first are the ones who are most crushed by culture. But you're absolutely right. I think men are getting crushed from all different sides. And there will be, it's up to them to say for themselves, I get to be me. I don't have to be what the culture says I should be. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to go back to that suffragette. Yeah. So she basically said, my mission is to bitch and moan in front of women to make them feel worse. And, and, and then we're going to, and that's going to help them. I love it. I love it. It's just making me feel differently about like that one person in the office, you know, who's just always moaning about how crappy the job is and everything because it's like oh they're just deepening our disappointment Mm. until we can stand it no longer Hmm. I was thinking of it more like a therapist I used to have a therapist who would say I was in group therapy right and so there would be somebody who's like the husband or partner was being mean to her or parents it was more likely to be parents so she'd have the person sit in a chair and imagine like their nasty grandfather on the opposite chair and the grandfather was saying, you're just, you're no good for anything. And she'd say, she would make the person agree. She'd say, yeah, yes, grandpa, I am a bad person. I am nothing. I am. And she'd say, keep telling him. And finally the woman would go, no, it was Hmm. all women. Um, I'm sure men would have done the same thing if they'd been in the group. Um, But, but she would just make them keep agreeing with the system until they realized how toxic it was. Mm. And they said, no. Because if she said no, that was just one more cultural pressure. She would make them agree to the point where they finally said no. So there's there's no way I can dovetail this into complaining more. Oh, no, you absolutely can. Oh, thank you. Complain all the time. Complain in your sleep, my love. Oh, I do, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's so interesting about the guys and... I think I do think there's a crossroads yeah for a lot of you know and yeah heterosexual men because that part hasn't hasn't they haven't come up against it yet right yeah. that it for gay guys or you know anyone who doesn't identify as straight um there's or white I mean there's yeah, a yeah, huge but she, race but, yeah but Judy problem. specifically mentioned heterosexual and so you know I think that they've had to go through a, a certain reckoning in the in their core that maybe has led to the piece that you're talking about Mm. or more of it so that as people go through this really fundamental reckoning maybe they end up being more peaceful on the other side I don't know yeah because we could flip Judy's question and say um the more peaceful I make my life the less hetero men fit into it 
they're not allowed into peace. Like mm. the culture forbids them to enter the place of peace. And, and that may not be. I'm just saying it could go either way. It could be that she's kicking them out because they're not peaceful. Oh, no, I don't think she was saying that at all. I think I think it was that she just noticed that suddenly right. they weren't they weren't among those there, probably because she got rid of them, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Judy, they're Judy, probably Judy. stuffed in a Christmas van, three deep. God. No, Judy, The you would van never. wasn't a Christmas van. The van was for life, not just for Christmas. It was the <laughs> uncle. Get it straight. All right. Well, I I think we've figured this out. Yeah, I think we've figured, oh gosh, I I hope we didn't say anything deeply mortifyingly offensive to anyone, but that would just be a normal day for me. So (laughs) who's our next person? Our next person is Bryony and here she comes. Hi, Ro and Marty. Um, My name's Bryony. I'm a 24-year-old woman. And I've realized recently that how I present myself to the world and interact in my romantic relationships has been based a bit on internalized misogyny and homophobia, um, and that my true nature might be a bit less binary, and that I'm possibly attracted to women. Um, How would you advise exploring this while leaving behind this internalized crap and being super respectful to myself and others, and also... Where do the gays go? <laughs> um, I love you both endlessly and thank you for making me laugh. Aww. Thank you, Bryony. Thanks, Bryony. Where do the gays go, Marty? Our house. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Come on over, Bryony. It's awesome. Just watch out for the Christmas uncle. That's right. Don't go for a walk up that way. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it's funny how we didn't select these to be no, we you just, know they just we just went to the next ones that that came up and um and yet it's so close to where we ended up going with Judy. I think one of the marks of our time in history, uh, uh, granted that people live for extra centuries that the planet doesn't fry, um, is that we will be the moment in history when gender came under question, like this deep, deep acculturated rift. Gender, sexuality, identity, yeah, all of that. Like that, it, it, like there was a time when people stopped being cruel to animals. As a, a like, there were laws suddenly about no cruelty to animals. Then there was a time when they they actually used a case about they used a law against um, hurting an animal to to prosecute someone for child abuse. And that was the time when children became valued enough to be protected from abuse. And like, it, there's always a thing happening. And our thing happening is that the deepest identity the culture gives you, your gender and your sexual identity, is now being seen as a narrative, not something we naturally are. And people are starting to say, that's not my nature. That's so interesting. I was just trying to think if there was any, because what, what strikes me about what Bryony said is just this thing of there was a binary I had this binary model in my Mm -hmm. head and I'm starting to think that doesn't work which I just think is so representative of where so many people are and I'm just trying to think is there are there any other because I think the binary form is very much part of our culture as a a form of thought it's either one thing or the other yeah and and that all our evolution and our spiritual evolution and everything is always about transcending the binary yeah and seeing what's on the other side and I just think we're doing such an interesting job right now of exploring that and it's like is there you just said 
gender and sexuality are our deepest cultural well, identity Well, yeah, they pull forms. you as soon as you're born, they're like boy or girl. Right. And there it is. From that moment, and there are many studies on mm-hmm. this, you treat that child differently depending on whether you think it's a boy or a girl. Right. So do you think there's anything else in our culture right now, any other markers where binary is starting, like binary forms are starting to break down? Well, what comes to my mind immediately is Asian philosophy where the entire thing, I mean, from way, way thousands of years ago, um, the enlightened people in India and China and Tibet and all that were, set, were having these experiences in meditation that took them beyond binary categories. So dualism is the nature of the material world, but the ultimate reality is the field through which the binary functions. And I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it again. Um, life and death are not opposites. Birth is the opposite of death. Life has no opposite. It's the field through which birth and death traverse, right? right. They come Eckhart, in, they go out. Eckhart Tolle so that. the idea is that all the dualities, we, we have brains that think in dual systems, but the whole idea is that that's an illusion. And beyond duality, there's a complete freedom. There okay. is no defined, that's why they call it no self and they call it emptiness. And Westerners hear that and they think, I want to be an emptiness and have no self. Mm. But what it means is that you are completely able to experience anything that is true for you. And your nature is to experience it as bliss and joy. And even, even the sorrows that humans feel are, are part of the great drama that is being appreciated by the universal consciousness, which has no gender, has, I mean, Jesus said the same thing in the, in the New Testament and people don't talk about it. They said, who marries who in heaven? And he goes, there is no marriage. There is no duality. So sorry, I'm getting a little. <laughs> sorry, let's go back. I, <clears throat> I love that. And uh, I think it's such an interesting sort of reflection on even though things are so bad right now in so many ways that maybe there's there's hope as well because we're edging closer to that. But what I was actually asking you was can you think of anything else in this contemporary society right now that is changing that might be emblematic of a greater sense of binaries breaking down in the culture. I can't. I, I wanted to, but I couldn't. Um, but as you say, like that, the gender place is such a. Well, the thing that I'm thinking about is, sorry, I sorry for my 10 minute disquisition on <laughs> philosophy going into religion. Yeah, no, but um the brain has two hemispheres that think similarly, but not quite the same. Actually, they're quite different. So there's this binary breakdown. And, and some like psychologists thought that's the origin of consciousness is because there are two sides of the brain and they start talking to each other. And we think that we're like, we become aware of our own consciousness because everything's split. Um, but the way of thinking has moved from... Um, okay. Have you heard this joke before? There are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide everything into two categories and those who don't. Right. Well, the left side is what divide of the brain is what divides everything into two categories. The right side doesn't. The right side is non-dual. It's universally connected. It can hold paradox, all these things. So over time, what at least some historians are telling us is that society itself has shifted away from the binary and more into the well, sorry, it started with the non-binary and it shifted into the binary, like right around the time we think civilization started. So there was a time when everybody, an artist who drew a profile would always draw the right side profile. 
And that switched about 400 years ago. And now they almost always draw the left-hand profile. Oh, that's the left fascinating. Side profile. And it's because when you look at someone from the right side of your brain, you see the right side profile and vice versa. Wow. So there was a point at which brains flipped to seeing the other side of a person as more significant, literally the left and right of a person. Was it, I mean, we always, I'm just, I'm so curious about when it happened and I'm wondering if there's anything to do with the industrial revolution because it feels, no? It was it always... a little prior to that, but it was around the time that people started to become, like I always talk about the time when the, the merchants joined with the aristocracy and started creating the current economic, socioeconomic period, pyramid, sorry. It was around that time when people huh. were seen more as workers and they started commodities, numbers, commoditizing human individuals, yeah. that they stopped drawing them from the right side of the brain, which sees them as infinitely varied, <sighs> and went to the left side, which sees a sort of template. Conveyor belt, yeah. like factory model. It's yeah. the same thing though, right? It's the model that gave birth to the Industrial Revolution. Right. So it's it's actually the oh, same yeah, it's thing. All oh, along, and it's gone further and further and further. The whole iron cage of rationalism is all about leaving the right side perception behind and going into the type of thinking that is on the left side of the brain. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's cool. I just, I had this image come into my head. Um, as you were talking about that, because I was thinking about Bryony saying, you know, that she has this residual, like, internalized homophobia and misogyny. Yeah. And I was like, wow, so maybe if the culture is living in that conveyor belt side of the brain, the left side of the brain, mm-hmm. then then maybe what's happening for Bryony and so many of us is that we're starting to trickle back yes. to this part that knows there's no binary. Yeah. But there's like still a shadow. It's not like a switch getting flipped. It's like a slow, I don't know, pendulum or something. I don't know. But And and so she's still feeling the shadow of, of the cultural ideas yeah. about misogyny and, and homophobia and whatever. Yeah. Like if you were raised in this culture and you're wondering if you have internalized misogyny and, and homophobia, you do. Mm. You just do. You inhaled it with your very first breaths, right? It's just everywhere in the world. But um, I think you're right. I don't. I think there was a gradual shift from a holistic view into a binary view, and now what's happening? You said earlier it's it's breaking. Mm. It's not just shifting gently back to the right. It's more like people are saying, "I cannot fit in this cage you have given me." I, I am not like, it's not like I want a different size cage. I want to just break down the cage. Mm-hmm. And the cage is this really sort of rigid view of people as commodities that we get with, with capitalism and all the other systems of modern civilization. And so we're all breaking. And, and that's the way we get back to the right side when we say, I will suffer this no longer. And gender might just be... Um, or sexuality might just be the canary in the coal mine, like the most visible sign, like immediate sign yeah. of that thing that we're going to now see rolling out throughout the world. I mean, this is super exciting, Marty. This is like the first time I've heard science really clearly kind of describing what you've been describing as the transformation of well, consciousness. Well, it's not right? science writ large. It's some scientists. I just happen to really dig them. I but they're good. Science. It's really good science. Science is as selective as everything else. Oh my so. god! Yes, and as religious. Yeah, it's so dogmatic. Right. No, oh we cannot. The, you know, the universe. God does not play dice with the universe. Ooh, well, maybe God does. Okay, what does science look like 
if it's performed and enacted entirely from the right side of the brain. Oh, it looks wildly exploratory, experimental and accepting. Cool. And the and science is the worst offender at trying to make everything rigidly left brain. Right, it's like classify, break down, yeah, break and into smaller components. And and what it tells you another thing is the left side of the brain refuses to admit that anything else exists besides it, where the right side of the brain is like, yeah, paradoxical things are going on. It's all right. Matter is both a particle and a wave. I can dig it. We can the transcend is, binary. Yeah. Then the left side is like, no, no. It's either a boy or a girl. God damn it. Yes. Yeah. So like that, that left side um, way of saying I am right has really infected the sciences more than anything else. And they, they can say, like there was one scientist, a psychologist who defined love as uh, emotional perturbation, perturbation related to sex, sexual union. That was <laughs> wow, love. That's great. Right. <laughs> oh boy, if I had a dollar for every time <laughs> yeah, I felt that. <laughs> it's like, I love my child. Uh, no, 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 you can't measure that. Well, you measure it by sexuality. Yes, I can measure my sexuality. I mean, it's just, it literally is like... Uh, a dick sizing contest at a certain point. I agree with you. All anyway, right. So this is all very, very exciting to me, but I'm thinking about poor Bryony sitting there. Poor Bryony. Wondering where are the gays? How can she, hey, they explore the parts of themselves that aren't as binary. And you thought of a way, a litmus test that is so accurate and we had never even talked about it. Oh my but God, it you're is right. the litmus test to see if you're a lesbian. Okay, so just ignore everything we just said about everything. the right brain because this is just like a legit, for sure, objective, empirical thing. Yeah, and this is just math. This is just math. If you want to know whether or not you are a lesbian, go find this song that I'm about to name. You will know at the end of that song. Just play it doesn't have to be under any special circumstances or conditions. Just play the song and at the end you will either say, oh, my God, I am a great big gigantic lesbian or you will say, oh, God, I'm so close to saying something filthy. I like men. <laughs> um, I already used the D word. Oh, I was going to use the C word. Not that one, the other one. Oh, confident? Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I like confident. There you go. Um, yeah, so the, go everyone. Tell us go, the song, all right, right. all right, all right. Go Google Cheryl Wheeler Arrow. Go listen. You'll understand what I mean by the time the song comes to an end. It's called Arrow, Cheryl Wheeler, perfect lesbian litmus test. Yep. Um, how should she explore it? Well, you play it. And no, no. <laughs> <laughs> God, we are so left brain bringing everything back to genitals. That's true. Is that the left brain or is that just genitals? Maybe it's just, that's, maybe that's, that's where we keep brain. our left brain. That's the Southern brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you explore it? Uh, well, I my first idea, we were talking about this. I was like, just tell her to go read books. Because that's what I did. I was I would like when I was first starting to think, I may be gay. I would go to the bookstore. We still had bookstores in those days. And I would tiptoe over to the part of the bookstore that had the gay and lesbian like literature. And there would be a picture of 
like companion volumes, one for gay men with these gorgeous muscled torsos together, two torsos, and then one for lesbians showing two women in bed, separated by about three feet with covers up to their heads, talking. (laughs) (laughs) About books. About books. (laughs) So I said, well, she should read. And Ro was like, ah, aren't there better ways? Yeah. I don't know either. I think you probably already know that, Bryony. Just, you know, she's already Googled, you know what I mean? Yeah, everybody Googles these days. Um, Just don't start out by dating because that's so much pressure. Just like... Just Google what you asked us. Google what you Googled us. Where do the gays go? And then put near me because <laughs> Google's really good at your, your location. And then go there and then play Arrow by Cheryl Wheeler to all the people. That's how you'll identify which are the gays. I think that. I think we've solved. That's it. Let's figure it Boom. out. Mic drop. All right. Love you. Have fun out there. Good luck, Brian. You're going to have fun. All right. The next person that we're going to hear from is our beloved Annette, and I am going to go ahead and play Annette now. I would love your thoughts and advice on something I'm really bewildered about, and that's buying a house at the moment. I have never really been a capitalist kind of person, but I wish I was. I wish I'd saved lots and lots and lots of money. But I find myself competing with people with lots of money and feeling very envious of that. I would love your thoughts on the idea of home and this kind of really strong desire people have at the moment for home and your thoughts on money and how sort of competitive and frenzied that's become in this world. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people are going to identify with that, I think. Absolutely. Thanks, Annette. So it's, I immediately wonder, like Annette sounds Aussie to yeah. me mm-hmm. and I I feel like I really, really, really strongly relate to that idea of I'm not capitalistic right. but I wish I'd saved money and bought a house when I was young and all of that. Like that feels so familiar and true to me and I wonder how much of it is like, and I, maybe I'm reading into what Annette said, but there's almost this feeling of, sorry, Annette, if this is wrong, but like, I'm not a dirty money obsessed, um, capitalist, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's very much how I was in my younger days as well. Like having that real judgment Mm -hmm. on money. And I think a lot of Australians are, I'm not sure how Mm -hmm. widespread it is. Certainly, among my friends that I grew up with and spent my early 20s with, where while we paid low rent and didn't, didn't save and didn't buy houses, um, that was very much a almost like a there was a suspicion or some sort of moral virtue That's about so not. Australian. So I, Americans I don't think don't, any American ever went, oh, my God, I have enough money for a house. I, my friends are going to hate me. You know, I, I think it's very much the the – egalitarianism of Australian society where Americans are like, I want to be rich, you know. Yeah. Not everyone, but I'm making generalizations. Right. And I, my experience has been that. And it's been that even though I actually do think that I want to be rich and I don't care who I trample in getting there and all of that sort of really extreme version is dangerous and awful actually. But I, I do think that that has allowed the American cultural psyche to be much more comfortable yeah. with yeah. the idea of money without turning it into 
uh, having any means you're exploiting someone. Right. I think is maybe part of the the messaging I, that we get. I kind of had the same thing. I was raised with similar values, weirdly. But um, I remember uh, when I was working for the Oprah magazine and I sat around and I thought one day, because Oprah was raised, like, there were very low odds that an illegitimate black girl abandoned, you know, to her grandmother to raise on a tiny plot of land in Mississippi in the fifties was going to become a billionaire. That was just not considered likely. Um, But I remember going to a thing once where she was there and thinking no one ever got poor because she got rich. That's right. So that for me changed my thinking about money. I suddenly saw that Oprah was this circle of energy. She was a huge force of energy. And I, I always quote that my friend who said, who worked with Gandhi, who said it took a lot of money to keep Gandhi poor mm. because his energy drew attention and drew support, sometimes in the form of money. But it was his energy that mattered. And I started to look at. Which isn't to say that all of the world's billionaires didn't get there by exploiting others you know like I think we're back to left brain right brain old culture new culture all of these kind of ideas because I think for the majority of time wealth has followed exploitation in a massive way and Oprah's such a great example because it genuinely hasn't like no one out there is saying she's cutting she's cutting her staff's hours and conditions and all of that it's not that's not the energy of And she's Oprah. a huge exception. I mean, the wealth yeah. of America is built on the backs and bodies of people who were exploited. So absolutely. But this exception made me sort of see, oh, maybe there's a new way to relate to money right. myself. Yes. And I didn't have much money at the time. And I started to feel it as energy. And I remember thinking of it as, well, what if it were a flock of sheep? Then I would mm. love it and it would reproduce for me. Yeah. And I started having this affection and money started to be more friendly to me. Yeah. And I've seen it happen with many, many people. And it's so interesting that Annette brought up money and home. Right. And as the two things that she's trying to figure out because it's like it's weirdly, it's not connected the way the left brain thinks it should be connected where, well, obviously you need to buy a house. It's a commodity with value and da, 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 da. It's like, no, 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 no. They're both wacky, freaky, woo-woo things. Yeah. And in fact, I can tell you after working with hundreds of people one-on-one and thousands in groups, there are three places in the life cycle where people have more woo-woo experiences than any other. Birth, death, and house buying. Oh, that's so cool. Birth, death, and real estate. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And we had one of those when we bought this house, remember? Oh, my God, totally. We were going to buy a place near Old Windy Bush. So we were going to buy this house. We loved it. And then the seller withdrew, and we were heartbroken. And a friend of ours called and said, you know what? This, you were spared, and I'm not guessing. <laughs> and we were like, Okay. And she was a little woo, but very sensible as well. Then we finally, we moved to Pennsylvania, not having a house. We just had to stay with a friend. And then while we were living in the friend's house, this house came on the market, the one we live in now. And while we were moving in, the seller of the first house called and said, oh, guess what? We'd like to sell it to you after all. And we found out through our realtor that the septic tank had exploded at that house. And so the house was covered in shit and 
it was it would have been covered in shit metaphorically if we'd got it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's so many. I feel like everyone has a magical real estate yeah. sort of story as well. And I think, okay, so I'm trying to figure out some algebra, Marty. Yeah. Okay, so house is to home mm. as money is to what? Peace. Huh. Okay. So, Annette, if you travel like in your heart from what is a house, and I'm saying this to you, I'm doing it right now, what is a house to what is a home, and then c- can you do that? Can you go on that journey with with um, money as well? So you start out mm. with the, you know, cash or whatever, the way it looks like a, a, um, a Treasure bricks, and, bricks and mortar house yeah. that's, and then go across to peace or love or or something like that that is the, the feeling of home. Mm. Yeah, and make the same transition with money. So, like, I remember listening to you talk about money once and and I you had talked about picturing it as a flock of sheep. I remember pick, trying to, when I was trying to change my financial fortunes, um, picturing a golden retriever puppy running across the grass towards me. And you know when they're so fat and fluffy and their legs don't work properly and so their kind of knees don't work and so they're kind of almost constantly falling down and <laughs> and but they're so excited to see you and they're just like I love you and they haven't even met you yet and they already love you <laughs> and they're just like coming and coming you know with their little tiny feet towards you and you're going to give them such a big hug and that's how I started thinking about money that little running puppy and did running. it shift your money and did it shift your fortunes as a matter of fact, it did. It seems to have. Yeah. So here, I just want to put one little thing also in Annette's head and everybody else's, and that is the idea of longing. Mm. Um, the one of the, that very brain book I was reading that I mentioned before about duality talks about how wanting is different from longing, and how we're ta- the left brain wants things like we're taught to want a house, to want cash, but what we long for is home and peace. And huh. security. Yeah. And what we want almost never, we can't build it because we're really on our own. But the word longing comes from the word for tendon that mm. is attached on both sides of a joint and it pulls together. It So when you feel a sense of longing, it means that whatever you long for is also already longing for you. Oh, that's so wild because I think like we think we're struggling up a mountain towards this thing that we can't have, but yeah. actually it's longing for us just as much. It's that golden retriever puppy just yeah. falling down and getting up and running and saying, I love you so much. I really love that puppy. If you can find your longing and believe that whatever you long for is also longing for you and shift into that mindset, mm. watch. I've just watched people's lives change. I can't give you a study on this, but I've seen it over and over and over again. So Annette, um, invite us to your housewarming. I'm so excited for you and for all of you. And until we meet again, stay, stay wild. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need 
a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.